We're, we're talking about the Godhead, uh, teaching about the Godhead. We got through uh, quite a bit of uh, the Bible study last, last Wednesday night, and we intend to get through the remainder of it tonight. But as you'll notice on the top of your packet, it says the Godhead dash part one, uh, which means there, there is a part two. And that's it. There's part one and part two of this curriculum. And, uh, and we'll see if next week, if, if that's kind of the direction that we want to go, it is very likely we'll, we'll just continue down this vein. Um, part two uh, heavily deals, uh, pr predominantly it deals with um, the Trinitarian doctrine and just kind of understanding uh, what is presented in Trinitarian teachings and then how it is in contrast or different than what the Word of God actually says. And uh, I hope, I know we'll teach this uh, part two, and I'm sure we'll get into it next week. You don't want to miss it. Uh, but right now, uh, for those of you uh, that would love to get these blanks filled in that are on your page, we're going to do a, a speed review, and uh, we're going to start on that first page, and we'll, we'll get... We'll get on down the line uh, to where we left off last week. But before we go any further, I would, uh, I would ask you to pray together with me right now uh, to understand uh, these spiritual truths. We need to be spiritually minded. So let's pray for that specifically right now. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We are so thankful, Lord, for the opportunity, the privilege to study your word together. I pray that as the instructor that I will be led of your spirit to teach truth in love. And I pray that we will all have an ear to hear what the spirit is saying to us. Open our understanding to understand the scriptures. Let us be spiritually minded to understand the things pertaining to your word and to your spirit. We ask these things and expect them to be done even according to your power and your word and your will. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody say amen. So we began uh, just talking about the persona of God or who or what God is, which I had uh, taught on a little bit uh, to, to some level in the month of May. But starting off, God is an invisible spirit and cannot be seen by the human eye. This is mentioned in John 4, 24, 1 Timothy 1, 17, and even 1 John 4, 12 says, no man hath seen God at any time. Furthermore, we understand that God's full being is beyond the capability of man's understanding. So it's, it's God, to fully grasp him is really beyond man's ability. It's, if I could compare it to this, uh, even right now with the most advanced technology um, and, and, and all modern science, man still is not able to find the end of the universe. I mean, he could go into deep space, but, but they confess that there's, it's far beyond what they could even, even comprehend or understand. Uh, the numbers that they come up with are, are really just guesses educated, somewhat educated guesses uh, as to how many galaxies are in existence in the, in the universe. And so that's just, to me, that's just a sliver of, of really how grand God is. Uh, furthermore, if we are going to describe or to define God, we cannot use our own uh, opinions, 
but or, or our own ideas or even uh, even even philosophies. We need to be very careful that w- what we define God as that we use the infallible witness. Here's your next blanks of His Word, the Bible. Okay, so if we're gonna if we're gonna discover who God is, it is so important for us to look at His Word, which is the Bible. <laughs> One of these days we're gonna we're gonna have that on a timer. <laughs> so uh, now. Now, with that said, we, we, we want to make sure that we as believers, if we're going to describe God in any terms, we are using biblical terminology, scriptural terminology, okay? Now, with that said, we do understand that there are many viewpoints of God that are in existence. First, the first one we mentioned last week is that of atheism. So that's your next blank. Atheism is the belief that there is no God, which the Bible actually addresses that very idea, Uh, The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We talked about how uh, if we want to discover what defines a fool, you could read the book of Proverbs. Uh, The fool is the one that refuses instruction. The fool is the one that uh, refuses to receive correction or rebuke or refuses wisdom. And uh, we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 says, None of, none of humanity is, is with excuse for all of creation and the heavens declare God's glory. The second viewpoint is that of agnosticism. Agnosticism. Uh, if you're looking to spell that, A-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-E-I, or excuse me, I-S-M. Uh, A-G-N-O-C-T-I-C-I-S-M. I know that's a word that you use pretty much every day. Agnosticism. Agnosticism is probably a very popular viewpoint uh, in our kind of postmodern culture uh, because I think people, uh, especially millennials and, and those coming up, Generation Z, they're very open to uh, powers, supernatural powers. I mean, just uh, just look at you know movies that are out. I mean, th- there is an obsession almost with with the supernatural. But to say that this is who God is, they're like, they're not comfortable with that. So God is really, he's unknowable. You can't really discover who he is. But of course, scriptures tell us that God invites us to know him, to understand him. Even though we know that he's beyond our comprehension, still he he invites us to know him, to know the Lord. Then there's pantheism. Pantheism, it's actually interesting. I was having a conversation today uh, with my pastor, Brent Brosom who is flying out tomorrow to the state of Washington uh, to uh, do some teaching there, ministering there in, in uh, the area of Seattle. And he was, he's never been there, and he was asking my wife and I what it's like. We've been there rather recently. And uh, I told him, actually, I actually used kind of that terminology. It's very pantheistic. It's, it's very earthy, uh, where they, uh, the, the vibe or the feeling that you get a lot there is a people that really worship the earth. Uh, worship nature. And uh, of course, beyond that, that that's, that's, uh, you, you'll see that even beyond just kind of an earthy type people, but it's a people that even beyond that, they worship uh, creatures more than the creator. Um, and the Bible addresses that where God says, when I appeared to you at Mount Sinai, I didn't come to you in the form of a, a fish or a bird or a beast. Even though they were at the bottom of the mountain, 
uh, turning in all their jewelry and making it into a golden calf. Why were they doing that? Because they just came out of Egypt, and that was the way the Egyptians worshipped. That's where they lived for 400 plus years. And so that was, they were coming from that, that ideology of that's how worship looks. And then there's polytheism. That's on the next page, that top of the page, the first blank is polytheism, P-O-L-Y, poly mean, meaning many, theism, T-H-E-I-S-M, polytheism, meaning the belief in many gods. There are, there's more than one God that exists, right? Uh, that's, the, that's the idea. And so you, you'll find people that are Hindu or Buddhist, uh, a lot of Eastern religions, they believe in, in hundreds, if not thousands of gods. Uh, even the Greeks, they believed in a multiplicity of, of gods, that there wasn't just one god, but there was many gods, and these gods were at war with each other or are at war with each other. And then this last viewpoint, which is scripturally founded, is that of monotheism. M-O-N-O, -O, mono meaning single or one, theism, monotheism, and that's the belief that there is one God. And you can see all the scriptures that, that just boldly have bold declarations where the Lord says, I am the Lord, and beside me there's none. There's none that were before me, there shall be none after me, I alone am God. So well, if, if there's only one God, then what are all these other entities? And I mentioned this uh, last week. I, my personal belief, if, if there's anything that seems to have any kind of power, uh, spiritual, or some might even say supernatural power, uh, this would be essentially the fallen angels, Lucifer, uh, because we do know that he is considered the prince and the power of the air. There's rulers of darkness. Um, so spiritual wickedness in high places, all of these are descriptions of unclean spirits or fallen angels, angels that were cast out of heaven, which ironically was a result of Lucifer, who was this great angel, beautiful angel of God that God created, who was not content with his place, but wanted to make himself as God. So he, he wanted to be a God as God is, but there's only room for one God in the universe. And he was cast out of heaven. Then we began to dive into the Old Testament and, and how we are introduced to God and the designation or his name in the Old Testament. And that first blank next to the letter A, uh, a should be the letters Y-H-W-H. And we, we talked last week about how uh, this was first introduced to us in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, when God revealed himself to Moses from a bu bush that was burning yet not consumed. And when Moses said, well, what should I tell the people your name is? He said, I am that I am. Uh, it, we, we only have these four consonants, Y-H-W-H, uh, technical name for that is a tetragram or tetragrammaton. Um, you don't have to know all that information, but if someone ever throws it in your face, you're like, I, I, I've heard that before. Pastor Brown was teaching that on Wednesday night. Uh, but the reason why it's those four consonants, Y-H-W-H, is because around 300 years before Christ was born, the Israelites uh, feared taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so what they did is they removed those letters from the name of the Lord, 
but what we have today is essentially a substitution of the missing letters from the word Adonai, uh, which is a Hebrew word for Lord, but it's not, it's not the name of the Lord. It's, it's just a, like a title. Like uh, if you would go to the United Kingdom, there are lords. There are individuals that rule over land or own property. Uh, so Adonai uh, was essentially, they took the vowels from there and inserted them into YHWH. And now some, you know, that feel very spiritual, they, they refer to Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and, and some will even make quite a big deal and try to talk to you about how, well, this is how you need to refer to the Lord, Jehovah or Yahweh, um, which we'll, we're going to get to that. But actually what we discover, what God is doing is he introduces himself by his name to Moses. I am. And that's really what YHWH or Jah uh, in short it means. It is the self-existent one. So the Hebrew, the Old Testament designation for the Lord is the self-existent. I am what I will be. <laughs> what is your name, Lord? I will be what I will be. I will be what I need to be. I will be what I want to be. And so what, what he does from that point on is he begins to, he begins to use his name with adjectives or uh, characteristics to, to reveal himself to his people. And this is where we get in the, the top of page 141, or I don't, I don't think you have numbers on your pages, but on the top of the next page, uh, number four, the name Jehovah is used in many enlightening ways in the Old Testament. And so this is where we get, in, and, and it's got these scriptural rec records, Genesis 22, 14, so on and so forth. Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord is my provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my healer. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord my sanctification. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. Do you see what he's doing here? So I am your provider. I am your peace. I am your sanctification. That is what it literally is meaning. God is your provider. God is your healer. God is your shepherd. What he's doing is he's revealing himself. This, this God who desires to have relationship with man, this self-existent one, is showing himself and what he is. Now, another Old Testament designation for the Lord is the words either L, E-L, and that is not the Spanish word for, it is the Spanish word for the, but not in the Hebrew language. E-L, and then um, the plural form of that is Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M, or Elohim, H-I-M. The word Elohim is found more than 2,500 times. Now, here's, here's where some have mistakenly uh, interpreted the Old Testament use of the word Elohim to imply that this, there it is. That's plural. It's a plural word talking about God. God is multiple persons. There's, there's, there's multiple individuals there. But that's, that's not the proper use of the word. In fact, any, any Hebrew scholar worth their salt, even if, even if the individual believes in the Trinity idea of God, they would not look at this and say that that is indication of multiplicity of gods. 
The reason why is because when it's used in Scripture, uh, such as in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, and I appeared unto, uh, unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob by the name of Almighty El Shaddai, but by my name Jehovah was I not known. It's not referring to a plurality of persons. It's referring to a plurality of characteristics. One, there's one God. There's one Elohim. Essentially, the, the words that are used in conjunction with it determine the, whether it's meaning something that is plural or singular. And what we see here, God, we see all these attributes. God is love. God is light. God is holy. God is mercy. So God has so many characteristics. It's, it's very similar uh, if, if I could refer to the United Kingdom again, as I did last week, and you would speak to a majesty, they would speak of themselves more than just in the third person. If they were speaking properly, they would speak of themselves in a, what's, what's known as the majestic plural, majestic plural, meaning that they have a plurality of majesties. They, they are, she's the queen of many lands, of many peoples. Um, she rules over many uh, governments. And so when she is speaking, she will use the word, the preferred pronouns, if we could say it that way, we and us. And it's not indicating that there's more than one queen of England. It's indicating her plurality of majesty, of characteristics, of, of lordship or ruler, uh, authority rather. Uh, we see this in in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, all three Hebrew words denoting God are used in one sentence. The Bible says, I, the Lord, and we talked about how anytime you see in most of your English translations, you see in the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is in the Hebrew from which the Old Testament is translated from. That is Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay? And so it says, I, the Lord, or Yahweh, Jehovah, your God, Elohim, am a jealous what? God. And it uses the word El. So it's, it's showing here, I am, I am. I'm the self-existent one. I am God. I have a multiplicity of facets and features or characteristics. I am a jealous God. Those that are following along, it says one God, one Elohim, a plurality of characteristics. A plurality of characteristics would be that next blank. Now going on down, manifestations of the invisible God. In the Old Testament times, God revealed himself in numerous forms and manifestations. In numerous forms and manifestations. God, I've already referenced, God appeared to Moses from a burning bush. God appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. God appeared unto the elders of Israel on Mount Horeb. Uh, as a thick cloud and thundering and lightning. God appeared unto Isaiah the prophet in a vision that was surrounded by angels that had six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, two to fly. Each of these manifestations, however, were just temporary expressions of God's invisible person. Remember, God is a spirit. God is invisible. It's important to remember that we cannot see God. Why? Because he's a spirit. No man has ever seen God. All we can see with our human eyes is a manifestation or an expression of him. How he chooses to show himself to us. The invisible God manifested himself or revealed himself, made himself visible in the flesh of Jesus Christ. God actually took upon himself flesh, became man. He became human. Matthew 1, 23, it says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child 
and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. The one true God that there is none beside, he is now with us. Isaiah 9, 6 which prophesied of the coming of the Messiah or the Savior. It says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Who is this speaking of? This is speaking of Jesus who was to be born. He was the child that would be born. He was the son that would be given. And what shall he be called? Wonderful Counselor, which is actually a synonymous term with comforter, that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as in John 14. You might write under there, John 14, counselor or comforter. Jesus says, the comforter I'm going to send. I will come to you. Go on. It says, he is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1:15. Jesus Christ is the image or the visible form of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. John 14, 9, and Jesus says unto him, Have I been so long with you, yet you still don't know me, Philip? He asked Jesus to show him the Father. And Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So why are you saying, show us the Father? Now, 1 Timothy 3, 16, this is pretty much where we left off last week before Brother Nathaniel helped me out and told me it was, it was time to go. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was, who was? God. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This scripture begs a simple yet powerful question is who? When we answer the question, these questions, we discover a startling revelation of how conclusively the invisible God revealed himself to the world. We ask, who was this fleshly manifestation? Who was justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory? And for every one of those questions, we answer conclusively. According to scripture references like those listed, it was Jesus Christ. But yet Paul writes to Timothy and says it was God. God was manifest in the flesh. So Jesus Christ is obviously the subject of these specific events listed in 1 Timothy 3.16. And yet the Apostle Paul says it was God. The scripture reveals that Jesus Christ truly is God manifest in the flesh. The invisible God revealed himself in visible form. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 is a powerful scripture. The Bible says, be careful or beware, lest any man spoil you or ruin you. How? Through philosophy, through vain deceit, after the tradition of men. And this is where, unfortunately, a large part of Christianity has gotten to through the past 2,000 years Mind you that even in the days of the apostles, the apostles warned against false teachers and false prophets and false doctrine. And here we are 2,000 years later, and people have been spoiled through traditions of men, 
philosophy and vain deceit, and not after Christ. And Paul makes the record clear in Colossians 2.9, for in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness. These are two words that, that scream a totality of God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, what? Bodily, in human manifestation or human form. When we look at Jesus, we actually get to see the invisible God. John 14, 7 through 9 is that scripture again where Jesus has that question posed to him by Philip. And he tells Philip, if you've looked at me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, it again, it echoes the same sentiments. If our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Everyone say Christ. Of Christ. Who is Christ? He is the image of God. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. God is a spirit that is invisible, but he became visible to us in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it says there towards the end of the scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, this is the Apostle John, the beloved, saying we've seen him with our eyes. We've looked upon him. We've handled him with our hands. The word of life, that, that ties back to John chapter 1, the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The word of life, for the life was manifest and we have seen it. We bear witness of it. We show unto you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested or appeared, became visible unto us. When we truly understand who Jesus is, we will respond just like the apostle Thomas did when Jesus came to him after the resurrection. You could find it in John chapter 20, verse 26 through 28. Thomas, he wasn't there when the apostles were gathered together and Jesus appeared to them. And one week later, Thomas is saying, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I'm able to put my hand into where the nails were and into his side. And Jesus answers that request. He appears to him. And when he appears, Thomas declared. Now, this is Thomas, the Jewish man who grew up memorizing the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. There is only one God. There's one Lord. And when he saw the resurrected Jesus, this Jewish man who grew up repeating that, repeating that, repeating that, saying that every single day he looked at Jesus and said, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Now, if that's not enough, the next thing we're going to look at is the name Jesus, the name Jesus. This is further proof of who Jesus was and how Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. The angel Gabriel revealed that the name of the anointed one or the Messiah would be Emmanuel, God with us, the mighty God according to Isaiah 9, 6, the everlasting father. And it says in Matthew 1, 21, that she shall bring forth, Mary will bring forth a son and you will call his name what? Jesus. 
In Hebrew, this name is Yehoshua or Yeshua. Greek, it's Jesus. In English, it's Jesus. The name literally means Jehovah has become our salvation. Keep in mind what we just talked about, how the I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, he revealed himself throughout the Old Testament. I am your peace. I am your righteousness. I am your provider. I am your healer. <laughs> and then it gets to the opening pages of the New Testament, of this new covenant. And you're going to call this child Jesus, which means I am become your salvation. God, Jehovah, has become our salvation. The words Christ or Messiah, they're translated from a Greek word, which means uh, anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mishayek or Messiah. It means anointed one, the anointed one of the Lord. But the name of Jesus is the culmination of the name of God. It is the most exalted name ever revealed to mankind. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, when Peter and John are being questioned by the rulers of the Jews for the miracle that had been done to the lame man at Gate Beautiful. And Peter said, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you've crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth. When we say Jesus, we are declaring Jehovah has become our salvation. To me, this is so, so beautiful. Even when you think about baptism, when you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're declaring by your baptism that God has become my salvation. That the invisible God, who is a spirit, became my Savior through his perfect life lived, suffering, died, buried, and rose again. God is my salvation. In understanding this name, we must realize that God did not change his name from what he revealed in the Old Testament. It was an eternal name. But rather, we find that it simply revealed himself in a more personal way as our Redeemer, as our Savior. In other words, we no longer need to refer to God simply as Jehovah or Yahweh. But now we could call him Jehovah, our Savior, every time, every time we say Jesus. Every time you say Jesus, you are saying Jehovah, my Savior. The name of Jesus is the source of eternal life. It's of salvation. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. John 20, verse 31, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life. How? Through his name. All throughout the Gospels, there's emphasis, scriptures emphasizing the name of Jesus. Acts 2.38, of course, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So Jehovah has become our salvation. Now, when you begin to look at scriptures, you see that on one hand, yes, he's Emmanuel, God with us. But on the other hand, 
we see scriptures where he, he prays or he gets hungry. Let's, let's talk about that. First of all, Jesus, understand that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Jesus was God manifest, the one God manifest in the flesh. All the fullness of the God was in Jesus Christ. On several occasions, Jesus actually affirmed that he was Jehovah or the I am. Here's one of those places, John chapter 8, verse 58, and they're all throughout the gospel of John. So when you go to read John, look for every time Jesus says, I am. It is extremely intentional. Why? Because he's, he's a Jewish man speaking mostly to a Jewish audience that identifies the I am to be the Old Testament designation of the name of God. And here he says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. What was the result? What did, what did the audience do? They took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Later, Jesus again declared himself to be Jehovah or the I am. Like before, his listeners desired to kill him for this proclamation. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. We don't agree in one. We are one. <laughs> then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus says, many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works are you about to stone me for? The Jews said, not for your good works, but for blasphemy. Why? Because you, being a man, are making yourself God. Of course, these individuals had it wrong. Jesus wasn't a man making himself God. He was God who made himself man. What the cynics thought was blasphemy actually was the greatest event and revelation of all human history. Jehovah God had come in the flesh to seek and to save the lost. Luke used the words God and Jesus synonymously, actually, further revealing that Jesus is God in Luke 8, 38 and 39. Jesus sent him away saying, return to your house, show how great, how great things God has done for you. And the man went his way, published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. After Christ's resurrection, Thomas referred to Jesus as my Lord and my God. And guess what? Jesus did not disagree with what Thomas said, but rather he responded favorably by saying, you've seen me and believe, but more blessed are those who don't see me yet believe. We must truly understand that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God. The scripture reveals this great truth over and over again. And so what we're going to look at is a chart. On the left-hand side are scriptures in the Old Testament applying to Yahweh, Jehovah, all right? On the right side are scriptures in the New Testament that apply to Jesus, and we're going to see how they are one and the same. Jehovah is unchanging. Jehovah is unchanging. If you're filling in blanks, that's your next blank, or uh, I guess I missed the blank. The Hebrew name for Jehovah is translated as Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. Jehovah is translated as Lord in the Bible, and then when we go into the chart, it should say Jehovah is unchanging. Can you guess what it says on the right-hand side? Jesus is unchanging. Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, Jehovah, all caps, L-O-R-D. I change not. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 8, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jehovah is omnipresent. 
which means he is always present, everywhere present. Jeremiah 23, 24, can any man hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I feel heaven and earth, saith the Lord. And we find in Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus declares himself able to be in multiple places at one time. How can that be unless he was God? Jehovah is omnipotent or all-powerful according to Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 12. But yet Jesus declares in Matthew 28 verse 18 before he ascends up into the clouds out of their sight after his resurrection. Jesus came and spoke unto them saying all power. Do you know how much all is? All. It's all of it. All power in heaven and in earth is given unto me. Jehovah in the Old Testament is declared to be omniscient or all-knowing. Omni meaning all uh, science, essentially. Shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judges those that are high? Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting, my uprising. When I sit down, when I get up, you understand my thoughts when they're far away off. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. And then in John chapter 16, verse 30, we see that Jesus says, Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, or instead of Jesus, thou knowest all things, and it is not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. He's revealing himself as God. We see that Jehovah is sinless, declared in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he is without iniquity. And what made Jesus' sacrifice able to atone our sins was because he had no sin, according to 1 John 3, verse 5. Jehovah is the judge, according to Psalm 9 and Psalm 50, but yet 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in their body, whether they be good or bad. Jehovah is the first and the last. Isaiah 44, verse 6 is one of the places where you can see this very clearly said. But yet in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And if you go to the last chapter of your Bible, verse 13, Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jehovah is the king. Who is the king of glory? The Lord or Jehovah. Of hosts, he is the king of glory. And then in John 1:49, Jesus is declared to be the king of Israel. Also in Revelation, he's declared to be the king of kings. He's also declared to be the Lord of Lords, Revelation 17, verse 14. But this same designation is given of Jehovah in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Jehovah also is declared in Isaiah 43, verse 3. He is the holy one. Everyone say one. Not the holy two, not the holy three. He's the holy one. I am the Lord, thy God, the holy one of Israel. And then Jesus is declared the same. Acts 2, 25 through 27. And David speaks concerning him. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. It's speaking of Christ. He is the holy one. Jehovah is the Savior Isaiah 43, verse 11, leaves no room for anyone else. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. 
And then Jesus is the Savior, according to Luke 2, verse 11, among many other scriptures. Jehovah is the true God, meaning he's the real or the only God of heaven and earth. Yet Jesus is declared this according to John, 1 John 5, verse 20, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his son Jesus. Go to the next page. It says, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life, speaking of Christ. We go on and on. Jehovah will dwell among us. It says that Jesus will dwell among us. Jehovah lifts up his hand and says, I will live forever. And then in the New Testament, Jesus lays his right hand upon him and says, I am alive forever. Jehovah's name is excellent. The name of Jesus is above every name. Every knee shall bow to Jehovah in Isaiah 45. Guess what? Paul writes to the Philippians and says, every knee shall bow to Jesus Jehovah is the creator, but yet John 1 verse 10, it says he was in the world and the world was made by him, Jesus. Jesus is the creator. Jehovah is the head above all, but yet it also says in Colossians 2, 9 and 10 that Christ is the head of all. We see clearly with these scriptural parallels of Old and New Testament scriptures that there is one God and he revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus is God. But yet we also have on our hands that Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully man. Look at this scripture with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man. Who? The man, Christ Jesus. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> the man, Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus... As God was the creator of the universe, but as man, he was subject to all emotions, limitations, and the accompaniment of all that comes with human flesh. Although he was God, he willingly submitted himself to the limitations of a human body. You could read about all these experiences that Jesus had as a man. He was tempted in every way as you are tempted, and I am tempted, yet he was without sin. He reverenced authority with under his parents. He grew weary, Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey, he got tired. He grew in wisdom, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, even though we could also read in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches of both wisdom and knowledge of God. He, was, he endured persecution, he had to go to sleep. He was fully God, but yet he had to go to sleep. But yet we know that the keeper of Israel, according to Psalm 121, verse 4, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He even got angry. He experienced joy, human joy, sorrow. He even wept. Shortest verse in your Bible and one of the most powerful, in my opinion, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. As a man, he wept. And also, he experienced death. Now, if Jesus is God, how could he die on the cross? For he is eternal. He is immortal. God cannot die. But as a man, he did. He fulfilled that sacrificial, atoning sacrifice. In fact, the man Christ Jesus, in his humanity, he didn't want to die. He didn't want to experience the suffering that he knew waited for him. Luke 22, 44, uh, 41 through 44, it says, And he kneeled down and... 
prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He didn't just kind of, he didn't just kind of waltz through. It wasn't just like a walk in the park. You know, I'm God, I'm just going to go through this. You know, you're going you're gonna to hurt me and, and, and do all these things to me, but it, I, I'm not even going to feel it. I'm just, I'm just going through the motions. No, he experienced all the suffering, all the pain that went with it. Now, I do want to, I, I want to address a couple things. Here in the curriculum, it says, here we see the flesh praying to the spirit, the human nature praying to the divine nature. As a fleshly being, Jesus knew he would feel pain and suffering. He was coming and his flesh desired to avoid it. Uh, this, I don't know if this would be the best way of saying it, but it's, it's really a mystery. The, that's, that's exactly what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Sometimes if, if you say it this way, it almost makes God sound, or Jesus sound like he's like split personalities, right? Uh, but that's not, that's not what it was at all. Number one, he was fully human. Okay? So God didn't come down and like, I have this coat on. He just put on the coat of human humanity. He just put on a, a, a flesh, a coat of flesh. He didn't do that. He fully was human. Just as though he was fully God, he was fully human. But he was not human like you're human. And what I mean by that, what we are human, we have inherited a fallen nature. He would be, his flesh was like that of pre-fall, before Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Their, their, their humanity was pure. But he was fully human, meaning as a child, he grew up. Like he, he didn't like, you know, if you ever see depicted like this infant child, like looking up at Mary and be like, you know, I bless you, like. That's not, I do not believe it. Though he was also aware as he grew, we see Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, right? I must be about my father's business. His, as God and as man, he, it, was, it was an inseparation. He was fully God. He was fully man. As God, he allowed himself to take upon himself the form of a servant. He was submitted to the, the plan the plan of God, the plan of redemption for mankind. And he experienced all the suffering, all the pain, all the shame, just as if you had felt it, if not in a greater sense. And from the cross, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I necessarily, I don't want to say I disagree with the way they word it, but I, I don't like the way they worded it here at the end. If you go on the last page, Matthew 27, verse 46, they try to explain this. Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and essentially what they, they're, they're trying to explain is because God cannot die, therefore there was this separation and uh, that the human, the humanity of Christ died. Um, what I feel, number one, is when Jesus said that, he, he was actually quoting from the book of Psalms. It was a Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 22 or 24. But he's actually quoting from the, the book of Psalms, which is, is, is depicting the suffering Savior. And any Jew in the audience that would have heard Jesus, they should have picked up on what he was saying. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It'd be like if I said, uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, 
You know, like, like there's a talk back, like, happy. Yeah, and there, there's, you, you, you're so familiar with something that as soon as someone begins it, you could end it. You could finish the song. And when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Any Jewish student of scripture would have known exactly. They could have told you the rest of the book, the rest of that chapter song. What he was experiencing, understand he was sinless humanity. Stand together with me. He was, if I could, he was sinless humanity. If you could go back to the garden. We read it so quickly and we just kind of, it, it hardly phases us. Man hides, right, from, from his creator. And God says, Adam, where are you? And he says, I, uh, why are you hiding from me? He says, I, I hid myself because I was, I was naked. I, I was afraid. I was ashamed. This is the first introduction in humanity, human history, of fear and of shame. And I, 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 cannot, I cannot imagine, we cannot imagine what that was like. He felt separation at the moment. He felt fear. Could you imagine? He, he had no sense, he had no understanding of fear, of shame whatsoever. He was clothed with the glory of God. Though naked, he was clothed with the glory of God. He felt no sense of shame, no sense of fear. And immediately when he disobeyed God, He, he felt that. Now, that was his own sin in that moment. That was the sin of him and his wife. Now, take 4,000 years of human history and the sin and the shame and the guilt and the fear and add on to that all the fear and the shame that would come after the cross. He took upon himself. He became sin for us. He was, he was God manifest in the flesh. He was, he was without sin. He was, he was pure from any fear of, of any shame. But yet in his humanity, he took upon your sin and he felt separation. The Bible tells us that this is, this is one of the most accurate descriptions of hell is that we will be cast out from the presence of the Lord into outer darkness. We will be eternally separated from the one who breathed into man and he became a living soul. We will be eternally separated from the source of life, the source of joy, the source of love, the love that casts out all fear. He felt that weight and penalty of sin in that moment. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? He felt the forsakenness of humanity, of all humanity, and the burden of that. I would dare say that the pain that he felt in that moment of the anguish of taking upon our sin in that moment was greater, greater than the pain of nails through his wrist or his feet or the thorns in his side, the humiliation of spit Someone slapping him across the face. The pain. Oh. But your eyes closed. Just close your eyes. I know we're done. And I know it's Bible study night. 
But I wonder if you could just go back to, to, to moments in your life. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get you to go back and revisit these places. But a moment in your life where you, there were things that you've done or seen or you're ashamed of. And you felt that weight of sin. You felt that weight of shame. And, and it was almost unbearable. what it drove you to do or what it drove you to feel. And, and, and think now of, of the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, Christ, God manifest in flesh, taking upon himself the feelings of our infirmities, the sin of the world. When they pierced him in the side, and doctors, I've read doctors' reports, they said when they pierced him in the side and, and blood and water poured out. The record was clear. Blood and water poured out. Physicians say that that is an indication that the, the way that he died was actually of a broken heart, of a heart that actually it, it exploded, where the w blood and the water separated in that moment. And, I, and forgive me for not using the proper medical terms. <laughs> he didn't die from the pain of the nails. He didn't die from the thorns. He died. He gave up ghost he gave his life for us and it was only our salvation is only possible because the lord jehovah i am became our savior i wonder if we could lift our hands all across this place and in closing let's just thank the lord that he made a way that god was manifest in flesh that he felt upon him the sin of the world. I thank you, Lord God. I thank you so much for your sacrifice. I thank you, Lord, for feeling the anguish and the agony, the crucifixion, Lord. It was more than just the pain and the humiliation that you endured physically. But, Lord, there was a spiritual, Lord, a separation that you felt, an anguish of a separation from the very, the very joy and the love of, of, of the presence of God. You felt that. In humanity, and Lord, you experienced that suffering. And you gave that sacrifice for me, and I thank you for it. I give you glory for it. I give you praise for it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.